This is Kalani Beach. We have the sea here in the background. We look around and can see the Sugarloaf Mountains. And soon after I started writing to Glen, I was down here going for a walk. And I came back and I spoke to him about this place, which I, I love. I find it a most peaceful place. And by now, three years on, he knows this place, I would say, practically as well as I do through my letters. He's got pictures of everything to do with it from every angle. He knows about the train, the dark train and the other train that runs up beside the beach. He loves the sound of the sea. I sent him a tape of waves so he could share this. He's seen pictures of the stones here. He has seen pictures of Sugarloaf. pictures of the Sugarloaf Mountains. He has shared with me experiences I've had walking along here with my dog. I've come back and told him about the people I've seen, what's the, going on on the water, in the water, on the beach. And it's, to me, a special place. I really love being here. Sunday, 27th of April. Glenn is near now. I want to tell him everything. Someone said they have stopped us taking in Bibles when we visit. I wonder what other changes there will be. I am excited and nervous. I want everything to be perfect for this one week. Please, God, let it be. The area around Mansfield, Ohio, is flat and ugly. It is plain, yet I love it here. It is my second home. Will I come back here after the execution? Hilary Hughes showed me a photograph. It was of a landscape flat and unremarkable. That's the prison, she told me, pointing to a scattering of low-level buildings in the distance. Inside one of these buildings lives Glenn, a man facing death for a capital crime. Once or twice a week, Hilary writes to Glenn, and Glenn writes back. And whenever she can, she travels to Mansfield, Ohio, to sit with him and talk. I hope you won't be disappointed to know that I am mature, 51 to be exact. I can hardly believe that myself, because most of the time I feel about 16 inside. To look at I'm small, 5 foot, fair, short hair, slim-ish, and I wear glasses. I smile a lot. That sounds really odd on paper. I am married and have three children, one daughter, 24, and a son-in-law, and two sons, 22 and 14. I can remember the first letter I wrote to Glenn. Um, I had, in my mind, sort of prepared a letter over and over again. But when you actually sit down, and I sat down in front of the computer, I typed my letters uh, to write to him, and, and suddenly all the ideas I had in my head seemed nothing. And I just wrote a very short letter of introduction and said, you know, I'm feeling rather shy writing to you now, so I'm just going to tell you a little bit about myself and my family. And um, if you're interested, I'd be, be very happy if you wrote to me. The nature of Hillary's friendship with Glenn is unconditional and non-judgmental, which means when she first started corresponding with him, she was deliberately unaware of the nature of his crime. 
in terms of their friendship, it simply wasn't and isn't an issue. When they now write, it's mostly about the present and the future. And although she is now aware of his crime, their friendship is deeper and stronger than ever. She's unequivocal about the concept of punishment, but is equally firm in her belief that another death will do nothing to alleviate the pain of the past and will, if anything, only cause more suffering. By reminding Glenn maybe of what he's missing, is, is there a danger that you may aggravate his situation? No, no. He really enjoys knowing about what's going on. He, he says that these are things that he can only experience through my eyes and he likes to get as much detail as possible. It's the only way that he can enjoy life in the free world. So I like to share as much as I can with him. And in doing that, I have found that I am becoming much more, I have become much more observant than I used to be. Things I used to take for granted, I don't take so much for granted now because I store them in my mind and then in order to share them with him. So for me, it's been a wonderful experience. I see so much more. I'm thankful for so much more of the everyday things that I used to take for granted. So this scene here now, for instance, I see, I see a grey sea to our right and a, a, a dirty brown beach <laughs> stretching ahead of us. That's what I see. What do you see? Oh, <laughs> well, I see a sea that... Every time I come to see it, it's different and has something different to say to me. I see, um, I feel more than see that the sand beneath me. I notice the stones, all the various sizes of the stones here on the beach. I see Dorky Island. I remember the stories I heard about Dorky Island. I know about the goats on Dorky Island. I see the hills on the, behind me there, the Sugarloaf Mountains. I remember walks I had up there. Every day I come here, there is something different about it. I mean, the sky today, okay, it's grey. It looks as though it might rain, but it still is beautiful. And the light is different every time you come to look at this place. Sometimes you have uh, the sun just shining through the light, the clouds onto the sea. Sometimes you have bright blue skies, Sometimes you have a rainbow. Sometimes the sea is still. Sometimes it's angry. It's an exciting place to me, and that's what I like to share with Glenn. 38 states have a death penalty. The federal government has a death penalty, and the U.S. military has a death penalty. My name is Rick Halperin. I'm a, a professor of human rights at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Uh, member of Amnesty International, a former chair of the board of AIUSA, and a member of several other abolitionist organizations in the states. The types of crimes that uh, a person would need to commit to be eligible to be sentenced to death would include uh, homicide in the commission of another felony. Uh, also, it is almost automatic in a death penalty state if a police officer is murdered. Um, this would almost automatically guarantee the defendant would be uh, sentenced to death. If the victim was 
uh, a member of a religious order, a nun, a priest, what have you, uh, if the victim was a juvenile, and this varies, some states, if the victim is 14 or under, the defendant could be sentenced to death. In some states, the age is, is, uh, is only five and under, but basically if the victim is a juvenile. If there are aggravating circumstances, that is to say, if, if the victim was subjected to torture, um, a particularly cruel, heinous, vile, slow, agonizing, torturous death, if the, if, if the prosecutors uh, feel that the victim was made to needlessly suffer and endure agony, um, the defendant could be death eligible. Uh, and in some states, some states have passed capital murder laws if the victim is either uh, physically or mentally incapacitated, if the victim, for example, is in a wheelchair uh, and, and more helpless, or if the victim is above a certain age, just as juveniles are protected in some states, so are senior citizens. So in some states, there is a maximum age law where if the victim is at least 65 and up, uh, some states are trying to pass laws that if the victim is at least 70 and up, so it'll be an arbitrary maximum age range. At the state level, those can get you capital crimes. At the federal level, you could be eligible for a death sentence if you are found guilty of the murder of any federal official, a judge, uh, a senator, a congressperson, obviously the president or any high-ranking government official, that can get you a death sentence almost automatically. If you are convicted of being a drug kingpin, that is now a new part of the 1994 uh, Anti-Terrorism Act. So there are federal crimes which don't involve a homicide but involve criminal activity which uh, results in homicides for others. That can get you um, a death sentence. And in the U.S. military, that, uh, of course, is their own separate code, but it usually would involve some kind of homicide while under active duty, uh, either committed against other military personnel or even against civilians if on leave, uh, what have you. Most states, I would add, there's one other category that can just about guarantee you a death sentence, either at the federal level or at a state level, uh, if you're in a state where death sentences exist, and that is if you commit a murder while you are in prison. So even if, you're, if you are in prison for a murder but not under a sentence of death and commit a, another murder in prison, that will get you a death sentence. Uh, it's a broad range of crimes. Monday. 28th of April. So much had changed since I was last there in September. The waiting room was so different I hardly recognised it. I was early as usual and was processed early. I enjoyed the opportunity to speak with the lady guard who accompanied me to the death row visiting area. I waited. The place was quiet except for the hum of the lights. That is the predominant sound here whilst I write too. Just the hum. Is it the lights or the air? Glenn kept me waiting 20 minutes. At last, the electronic sound of the door, and then he was there, 
Eight months gone, just like that. He looked great. His hair was the longest I've seen it yet. Glenn is uh, about five foot ten, five foot ten and a half. Dark hair, brown eyes. He is um, uh, medium built. Well, you know, well built. I would say really. He he liked to sort of keep himself fit when he when he could. He was dressed in the prison clothes that they wear, like a. He, they have to wear denims. Uh, blue denims with a red stripe down the side of the trousers. Even though he was at the other side of the barrier, um, which is a glass barrier, he was still handcuffed. So during our whole visit, he was handcuffed and he had to talk on the telephone. We had a long visit now. Our visit was seven hours. So he was holding uh, the phone with two hands for that length of time, which was very uncomfortable for him. Glenn is a quiet guy. He's shy. He's pretty much of a, a loner in, in himself. When we first met, he was obviously nervous. It was a big thing for him as well for, as for me, for this visit face to face. Um, he was a bit shy. We both were a bit shy to start off with. But we just sort of continued talking, you know, continuing on from our letters and... Um, we both relaxed and the time absolutely flew. I mean, during that time, you don't have any break at all, uh, unless you want to go to the bathroom or something, but uh, there's no food or anything to eat. <laughs> so, I mean, you're just there talking to each other. And I must say, we just we didn't run out of things to say. <laughs> we just kept on and on and on. Uh, maybe I talk a bit too much <laughs> at times, <laughs> but... Seven-hour conversation. Seven hour. Yeah. It's a long conversation, but I can't tell you. We've, we've done this a good few times now. And the visits we have now are, are five days in a row, and we can talk for five days <laughs> without, a, without a break. Sometimes repeating things, maybe, you know, or we talk. We don't have any problem. <laughs> Hillary is protective of Glenn. Any question which might prejudice his case or affect their friendship is carefully considered. Well, he worked um, as in, in a construction company when he was on the streets. And he lived for, uh, quite near. He went to high school. He didn't go to college after that. And he worked in a, in a construction company. He was very interested and still is interested in American football uh, and, and all sport generally. He has a family who live in, in Akron. His mother is dead. He has sisters uh, and a, a father and stepmother. Around his, his mother died long before he actually went into prison. So he does keep in contact with his family. Uh, growing up, well, they all lived to, you know, together growing up. I mean, he went to, to high school. He lived, his sisters are all older than he is. And... Uh, he lived in, in, in Akron, Ohio. I was curious about what he had done to end up on death row. Calmly, Hillary told me she guessed what he had done long before the subject was ever broached between them. And again, in terms of their friendship, it wasn't an issue. She showed me a collection of handcrafted gifts Glenn had sent her over the years. Delicate matchstick models, meticulously worked. And an ink drawing, the figure of a man rising out of flames. And then she handed me a photograph of Glenn, 
dressed in prison garb, standing to attention. I handled these tokens with reverence. I could see for Hillary they were beyond value. At around 10am it started getting noisy. Some people speak very loud. All the time there is the worry that when the door goes our visit will be terminated. Soon all the booths are full. There is the sound of an infant crying, the sound of laughter, talking, voices all around me. We just speak on the phone and don't mind anyone else. Glenn has short handcuffs on and I can see his fingers getting numb. An alarm goes off. Glenn says it is just the fire alarm. That makes me laugh because no one moves. About 30 minutes later, a guard arrives and terminates all visits. It's only 2pm. Hardly time to say goodbye. Glenn just sits there. I hate leaving him. There is tomorrow, thank God. As you know, my friendship with Glenn is tremendously important to me. He has given me so much from his friendship. And one lovely surprise he did for me um, after we'd known each other for some, some months was he wanted to tell me how much my friendship meant to him. So as a surprise for me, he wrote a small article and sent it into our Lifelines newsletter for publication. He told me there was a surprise for me in, in it, but uh, I wasn't to know what it was until it was published. And this really, really touched me. So I'll just, I'll just uh, read it out to you if that's all right. It says, um, When I met you, I had no idea how much my life was about to be changed. You are a part of everything I think and do and feel. You are so important to my days and so essential to the smile within me. You are incredibly special to me. I have never seen so much gentleness in one person. Even without knowing it, you were slowly making a place for yourself in my heart. You're the most important part of everything I do. You've brought freshness, newness, beauty and hope to my empty heart, giving me a whole new world where peace, joy and love abides. You've taken me to places that alone I would not have found. Just you and I in a special place only we can go into our hearts. We walk together slowly. All is peaceful, the sounds of silence. The rest of the world doesn't understand. Someone whose friendship can take me to a place where nothing matters but the two of us. I have so much to give, learn and feel. When I told you that, I never imagined you being my whole life your forever friend, Glenn. There are a couple of things in that that are special to us. One is at the beginning, like with most friendships, we say, oh, we've got to choose our song, you know, our song. <laughs> and the song we chose was uh, the one from Aladdin called A Whole New World. You know, I can show you the world because that's what I felt is that I can show him a world that he doesn't have contact with anymore, the world outside and he can show me his world he can show me the world of what it's like to be uh, incarcerated to be waiting as he is to be executed how it feels to be in that position so we were both showing each other our our worlds we also spoke about the sound of silence because a prison is an extraordinarily noisy place it's full of clangs bangs voices you know it's very very hard i believe to 
have any opportunity to actually be silent, to sit and listen to the silence, be still and know that I am God, if you like. So again, we have spoken about this, and that's what he refers to partly in in this uh, letter he wrote for me. At the very beginning, when we were beginning to get to know each other, he said to me, you know, I really have so much to give, to learn and to feel. And that was what we've been trying to give each other through our own friendship, you know, being able to give to each other, to learn from each other and to to feel things, to feel feelings, to feel what life is all about and love is all about and to give hope for the future, which, you know, it's hard to give hope to the future for somebody who's on death row. But I mean, as far as I'm concerned, future is eternity. That is the way I believe. Uh, as a Christian, life doesn't end on this earth. It is something that is forever. So I would consider that Glenn's and my friendship is a forever friendship. So we say that, you know, you're forever friend. That's how he signs that. Oh, you're forever friend, Glenn. There are, as of this date, March 12th, 1997, there are about 3,300 people under a sentence of death in the U.S. Uh, Overwhelmingly, the bulk of them are men, all but about 50. Most people would generically tell you that they think the average death row prisoner is indigent, beyond poor, having had some criminal record already, whether via drugs or other offenses, violent or otherwise, uh, they are what you and I would say the have-nots of American society. They are, they are people at, at marginal risk of survival or beneath marginal risk already. The majority of death row is not white, so it is a minority population. That is the typical perception of the average person on death row, but... It is very dangerous to say they are uh, they are the only people on death row. There are some, for example, there are there are over fifty Vietnam vets on America's death rows, people who served their country with distinction uh, and won bronze and silver stars and were high-ranking officers um, on death rows. There are other countries and nationals on death rows. We have Mexican citizens. We have a Canadian citizen. We have German citizens, British citizens. We have Panamanians. You don't have to be an American to be on death row in America, and we've got enough of them to clearly indicate that uh, that is not all that uncommon to be somebody else's citizen and end up on our death rows facing a sentence of death. In fact, we have executed other countries' citizens. The United States has already executed a Panamanian and several Mexicans. You can be on death row uh, by being, quote, an average person convicted of a rather horrible crime. We just saw this in Texas where a white mother of two, Darlie Routier, just your average suburban housewife, was convicted of the brutal slaying of one of her two sons and went to death row for it. She certainly is the atypical type of person, a uh, educated, relatively middle-class, economically better-off person, female to boot, white, uh, but she got a death sentence. So there's, there's all types on death row. 
the predominant sound is the sea, quite definitely the sea. I'm hoping that there would be birds, but I can't actually hear birds. That's what I like to listen for. But in the background also, I'm aware of traffic noises. It could be a train coming along or whatever, but there's a, a noise of traffic. And just, just the sea, that's taking over at the moment. I can hear the rain drops on my anorak. I can hear my dog moving towards me now. I can hear his footsteps on the, on the gravel. One of the things that I have gained so much from my uh, friendship with Glenn is all the ordinary things in my life, things that I have taken so much for granted. But I stop now and I look at these and I notice them and I tell Glenn about them. I look at the changes of the seasons. I listen to the wind. I describe it. I, I look at things like the bark of a tree or, or pick a leaf off the ground. I try and send Glenn these things sometimes, like a, a, a flower or maybe a bit of lavender, which is a beautiful perfume or... Recently, I sent him some rosemary, but um, by the time I got to him, I think the, the smell had gone. <laughs> Things like I take my dog for a walk. I like walking with my dog quite a lot. And it, I enjoy just looking around, taking in everything and then coming back and recounting all the little things to Glen. Like Kalani Beach is a place that I'm particularly fond of. And when I go down there... There are different scenes down there in the summer, in the winter, in the autumn and spring. <laughs> it's the dog. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I describe all these places, all these sounds, the, the, what the stones look like, uh, what it feels like, what the sea is doing at that particular time. I describe all this to Glenn and I notice it myself. So it's, my life has been extraordinarily enriched because of the fact that I have him to tell everything to. The U.S. loses 25,000 people a year just to handgun murders every year. It is, as you well know, as most people well know, an incredibly violent society. Guns literally number in the hundreds of millions. You can access a gun with relative ease in the United States. There are more gun stores in the U.S. than there are gas stations. They are that plentiful. It is legal in many states for an average citizen to own and carry a concealed weapon. So people that you pass on the street may indeed be carrying a weapon. Of course, there is a proportion of these guns which are used in violent offenses and American Americans and American society on the issue of violent crime is a society in fear and in great pain. The overwhelming bulk of these 3,300 men and women on death row are guilty. Uh, I don't mean to soft sell that. They are, they are not angels. They are guilty of horrible crimes, the most outrageous crimes. They are responsible for a great deal of pain and suffering in American society. There is no question about it. None. They have caused people to be brutalized. It is a natural reaction 
whether or not they were sentenced to death or 20 years or life without parole, the natural reaction of somebody that commits these types of violent outrages against your family um, and society in general is immediate outrage, immediate anger. You want to just tear these people limb from limb because of what they have done to your family if they've killed a member of your family or or caused your normal family life to be unalterably uh, changed for the negative because of violent offense. It is totally understandable to gauge the rage, the depth of rage in American society. That's It would be abnormal if Americans just sloughed off these crimes and didn't feel this anger, or anybody else. It would be abnormal. But that being said, capital punishment isn't lessening this amount of violence in American society. It isn't providing any answer. It isn't preventing anybody else in days and weeks and months and years to come to not commit these horrible crimes. And it gets to the nature of what should be the role of incarceration. Should it be punitive? Should it be rehabilitative? What is the point of killing these people if if they can be incarcerated? If these people can be removed from our midst and incarcerated and efforts can be made to help prevent others from being victims, the state of Texas has spent over $1.2 billion, with a B, billion dollars since the death penalty was re-legalized. That's a lot of money in 15 years. And money is a finite resource. So that is $1.2 billion that didn't go towards more police on the street. It didn't go towards drug rehabilitation or education. It didn't go towards battered women's shelters. It didn't go towards a lot of things. It went towards a system which has killed 108 and has 460 more to go. And if all of those 460 people were to be killed tomorrow, Texas isn't going to be any safer because its death row population is dead. It's still a population at risk because of the prevalence and sickness in America of the reliance of guns. Uh, America's just a violent culture. It's a sick culture in many ways with this love of guns and love of violence. It's just a sick culture. Wednesday, 30th of April. The radio woke me. I listened to a guy talking about the Timothy McVeigh trial. He spoke of a woman witness who had apparently been told by McVeigh that he was going to blow up the whole place. The presenter said, Thanks for telling us. She should fry along with him. Sick, sick, sick. What do these people consider justice? Revenge? They need prayer and pity. Glenn has more compassion and love in his little finger than that guy knows how to show. Death rows have one thing definitely in common, and that is that those who are incarcerated, and I'm speaking here of males, for the average male on death row in the United States, their conditions are very difficult. Some conditions on death row are markedly improved over others. But generically, the average death row inmate lives in a cell by himself. Uh, they are confined to the, a cell which is a size of about 
uh, your bathroom. And uh, most people, of course, don't live in mansions. Their bathrooms are pretty small. Uh, so if you can imagine what it would be like living in a bathroom-sized room, which has the following. It would have a bunk that is a steel bunk built into the wall. Uh, it would have a mattress, a very thin mattress, and a pillow. Uh, frequently no pillowcase. They don't want to give you anything that the inmate can use to harm themselves. So it's just a, a pillow. There is usually merely a sink, a steel sink, and a toilet. And again, with no seat, uh, because that can be used uh, for some type of potential weapon against a guard or anybody else entering a cell. So it's just a stainless steel toilet. They are incarcerated uh, in these cells uh, with a single, usually a single light bulb, 23 out of every 24 hours, uh, or sometimes just all 24 hours, and they are only let out of this cell perhaps once or twice a week for an hour at a time, either for an hour's recreation in a walled yard the size of a small handball court, or to take a shower. Usually most death row prisoners get one shower a week. Uh, it is not the life of Riley. I'm not suggesting that it should be either, but it is very, very stark existence. My family are just accept what I'm doing. I mean, they aren't tremendously interested, to be honest. My husband hardly discusses the whole thing with me. He just accepts that this is what I do. He's supportive. I, you know, I must say that. And he has no problem at all with me travelling and going over to visit. But he just has no interest in doing it himself. It's not his scene. He never writes letters anyway. And Glenn is a remote person to him. He knows he's there. And he will occasionally say, oh, how is he? I haven't heard from him or whatever. But or any news about Glenn... But beyond that, he's not interested in Glenn the person and he doesn't know Glenn the person. My two sons, again, they're very busy with their own lives. They might occasionally send Glenn a card. One son was away studying initially and I know that he did occasionally drop a postcard to Glenn. The other boy, the younger boy, would occasionally say to me, oh, tell Glenn such and such, especially if it's something to do with sport. And I would pass the message on. But they don't really have any contact with him themselves you know they know all know of each other's existence but they they don't bond shall we say thursday may the first the week goes so quickly and then we start the countdown to the next time i don't believe it's thursday already woke to music and to the news that it is cold 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 today it is it's like January in Dublin. I was glad to get into a heated car and cruise to the Mansfield Correctional Institute. The guard at the visiting office now has my pass ready for me each day. Today was wonderful. We had about four hours with just the two of us. Because we must talk through the glass by telephone and because Glenn must remain handcuffed all the time, he is suffering from stiffness. His neck is very uncomfortable. I am getting stiff too. We speak so much and listen too. 
There is nothing that cannot be said or heard. We have a wonderful friendship. I am really blessed. The only time that I ever really feel stressed in my friendship with Glenn is when I don't hear from him. When he is silent, I find it difficult. I become stressed. Um, when I say stressed, I, I don't mean that I would ever have any doubts about the friendship or that I would ever be worried about uh, him not being there for me or that, you know, he won't write again. But I just get worried about how he is, how he's doing, why he is not speaking with me at that particular time. Normally, I write to him every week, sometimes twice a week, you know, I write on the computer, as I said, and I normally would send him a postcard or a note as well. But I just enjoy speaking with him. He writes to me an average of at least once a week. But some weeks I could get four letters and then two or three weeks could go by and I wouldn't receive a letter from him. Now, when you think of his environment, it's not at all difficult to understand why he is not writing letters. But I become stressed when I do not hear from him. I worry about him. He's like, I suppose in a way, he's like a son to me. And, you know, I I must say I wouldn't be that concerned about my son if he didn't write, but I am concerned when I don't hear from Glenn in case, you know, he's not coping and I just worry about him. But except for those times of stress, I find the friendship extraordinarily rewarding. I have gained so much from everything that we have done together over the last few years. I'd say that letter writing to condemned prisoners in the United States is absolutely crucial for many reasons, but the, among the most important, in my opinion, is that it is um, a form of recognition that this person is a human being and that they have a name, they have a history, they have a present, and they will hopefully have a future. The philosophy of capital punishment in the United States is the current prevailing philosophy is to execute these condemned prisoners as fast as possible. Most of them have either been disowned from their families or have no families to begin with. So in most cases, to most of the United States citizens, uh, they are nameless, they are faceless, they are depicted in the media as, as less than human. It is consistent in the American media to depict these men and women, especially the men because there are way more of them, as animals, scum, dehuman, vermin, filth, uh, whatever horrible names can be ascribed to these people. And the American media is all too ready to accept this, particularly because of the horrible nature of many of these crimes. Uh, it matters not if they are innocent, they are lumped together with uh, the rest of these people as animals. It matters not if they are mentally retarded, they are merely an animal uh, in, the, in the American media. So the fact that you have many people in Ireland and in other countries writing to a wide range of condemned people makes it a little more difficult for the authorities to, to do away with these people as if they were anonymous 
because clearly they aren't. Many of these people here uh, in Ireland uh, display an unbelievable amount of compassion, decency, goodness, not just limited to letter writing. Many of them have been to the United States specifically uh, or exclusively to visit these men. And it's mind-boggling that citizens of one country, five, six, seven thousand miles away, would not so much write to a condemned prisoner in another country, which is incredible enough, but that they would make numerous journeys to see a condemned person, to to validate this person's humanity, uh, is is amazing. Friday, May the 2nd. Our last day this. We make plans for the next one, October. It will happen. There is some time. The Lord only knows how much, but still some. We are both tired today, but peaceful and content. More than five days would be so hard in these conditions. The handcuffs seem so unnecessary. The room is quiet today. The visit ends at about 2.55pm, almost in mid-sentence. I dislike the last goodbye, the last touch of the glass. Glenn goes quickly and I feel empty, but peaceful. I don't like leaving, but I know I'll be back. I know there'll be a letter from Glenn waiting for me when I get home. Something to look forward to.